Welcome to episode 9 of the Inclusion Initiative, a Jedi AAEM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, this podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown speaks with Dr. Paul Peterson, past chair of Jedi AAEM. Dr. Paul Peterson, thank you for being on the Initiative Inclusion Podcast. Thanks for having me. What did I say? Initiative Inclusion Initiative Podcast. Lord, how do I not know the own, the title of my own damn podcast? Lord, help me. Okay. Anyways, the point of this podcast series is really to show the diversity of our academy just by getting to know some of us that are in leadership, maybe some people that I see that are doing things quietly, that are secret squirrels, what I like to say. But of course, I need to sit and talk to you. Yes, we're, we're friends. We talk all the time. But I have to have you on here to get to know you and how you ascended to the role of co-chair with Dr. Joanne Williams of the Jedi section. But I wanted to start with, I, I just realized that I don't really know your background. Like you, you told me a little bit about it. Like I know you're from Utah and I knew you grew up Mormon and that's about it. So why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you grew up, Paul? Okay. I was born in Salt Lake City, raised Mormon, uh, went on a Mormon mission to Argentina when I was 19 down by Antarctica and Patagonia for two years. So I'm fluent in Spanish, then came home. I was going to be an English major or a history major because I wanted to get a little diversity before entering medical school. And I found out that actually the fastest way for me to get into medical school, because I was already a chemistry minor before I left on the mission, was to do a Spanish literature major. I majored in Spanish literature. I studied in Salamanca, Spain for a summer, did upper division courses, came back, graduated from the University of Utah with a major in Spanish literature and a minor in chemistry, and then went straight into medical school at the University of Utah. And then when it was time for residency, rotated all over. During my time at the University of Utah, I came out as a gay male. I rotated at Highland because of a colleague in Utah who said, I think you should go to Highland Hospital where I train. He was a ER doctor locally here in town in, in uh, Salt Lake City. Uh, rotated with Highland. They asked me to come and we matched. Once I was at Highland, when I finished at Highland, I knew I really enjoyed Latino patients. I was fluent in Spanish. And so I applied for jobs in Southern California, Texas, and Miami, Florida. I had done research during college at Bascom Palmer Eye Hospital in Miami. So I already had contacts in Miami. And actually one of my chief residents at Highland was working in Miami. And so the best job offer that I got was in Miami. And I took a job in Miami in 2001, one month before 9-11, that's how I remember. And then from there, I worked, that was first with Baptist Hospital. I was recruited by Mercy Hospital, then recruited by Mount Sinai Hospital, trained residents there for 15 years, and uh, have now been recruited by Cleveland Clinic. I've been at Cleveland Clinic since January. 
So let me backtrack because you said a lot of different things that I want to go back and touch on. <laughs> so from a little boy in Utah, then yes, you were on your Mormon mission, but then you, your Mormon mission, from what I understand and tell me, because this was your faith, that of course you believe that when you get to, I think it's the age of 18, then you have to go share the gospel. So the church will send you somewhere in the world. I don't know, if, is that a process that you pick or is it? Yeah, just- so actually it's a voluntary mission, mm-hmm. um, but you are pretty much prepared to be able to do that from childhood. I was very gung-ho and wanted to do it. I was an exchange student in Japan during high school um, and lived in a Buddhist temple. So that was, yes. You were an exchange student in high school and you lived in a Buddhist temple. Correct. Say more about living in a Buddhist temple. (laughs) So when I was 16... A counselor asked me to apply for a scholarship uh, that's put on by the United States Senate. Uh, And the U.S. sends two students per year to Japan, and the Japan Senate sends two students per state or per province, they would have, per year. And it's paid for by the U.S. and Japanese Senate. It's called the U.S.-Japanese Senate Scholarship. We studied at Georgetown Japanese for three weeks, visited with the U.S. Embassy, then we visited with the I'm sorry, with the Japanese embassy in DC and then with the US embassy in Japan. And then I specifically asked for a religious placement and it was a three month stay. And they placed me in a very small town called Saga, which is on the Southern Island, Japan, Kyushu near Fukuoka and on the same island as Nagasaki. And I was placed with a Buddhist priest who became a priest after having children. So he was, I lived actually in a home, which was a Buddhist temple with a uh, father and mother and two children. And the father was a Buddhist priest. That was my beginning of opening up to diversity, different points of view. I was a six foot two uh, football player, rugby player. And I will say that kneeling on my knees was not easy for someone my size for the morning prayers or getting up at 4.30 a.m. for a 16-year-old to do the meditations. But what else did that teach you? Because that is very, that's a very special and unusual experience. And I feel like maybe coming from a Mormon background, that maybe that pushed your beliefs in a certain way? Absolutely. So that gave me the ability to question my beliefs and to understand that there were other people who were, as Mormons or Christians would say, as Christ-like, as faithful Christians and Mormons, and didn't believe in Jesus. They were Buddhist, they were Shinto, and they were extremely welcoming, kind, open people. So with that knowledge, what made you still go on your own Mormon mission? Because it's still... From what I still understand, when you're on your mission, you're still spreading the church of the Latter-day Saints. Correct. I applied to go on the mission. I was still very faithful in the Mormon church at the time. I thought they would send me to Japan, to be honest. And I was surprised when they sent me to Patagonia. 
uh, because I was already conversant in Japanese when I applied. But I went to Argentina. They stationed me clear down by Antarctica. So what's the weather like there? I'm going to assume cold. <laughs> it was similar to, uh, it's a very big country. Uh, it expands a lot of uh, ground. And so I would say it was as wide as from Salt Lake City to the West Coast and from Canada to Mexico in uh, north-south length. And so you're going to kinds of climates just in the part of the mission I was in. Patagonia itself is that big. So you would there were areas that had climate more like New Mexico and other areas that had climate like northern Idaho or southern Alberta or British Columbia. So it spans a lot of different uh, climates, I would say. Now, down by Antarctica, it was very cold. It was like we were in the Yukon in Canada. Okay, got it. So what did you learn about yourself when you were on your mission? So I learned that I definitely was attracted to men and it wasn't going to go away. And I actually had a nickname on the mission, El Reglero, the rule keeper. And because I thought if I was a faithful missionary, that that would go away and it didn't. And so when I came home, I started the process of coming out. And to my surprise, my family was very loving and accepting, which is not necessarily the norm in the Mormon church, but they were, we have a very close family. They're very uh, supportive. And so their immediate reaction was, we'll start coming around more often because we miss you. Do you, or did you tear yourself away? I'm not going to say tear, but did you separate yourself from your family because you were struggling with those feelings? I li- At the time I was in medical school and I lived in Salt Lake City, okay. but I was slowly distancing myself because of those feelings, thinking that I would be rejected when in actuality I was told to come around more often and was accepted and loved. So I'm lucky and blessed in that aspect. Absolutely. I guess the the natural question is, so how did that, or how does that acceptance from your family, did that impact you in any way while you were in medical school or did that, how did it impact you, I guess? I think it's very important to have the love of your parents and to have that kind of support is, I think, paramount for any medical student who's going under a lot of stress at the time just by the fact of being a medical student and going on rotations, that it was very helpful for me to chase my dreams and to pursue medicine and to pursue emergency medicine. So it was very important and I'm very grateful for that. That's amazing. So that brings up the next best point or like, why did you decide to become a physician? So I had wanted to become a physician since I was a small boy, according to my parents. As far back as I could remember, I wanted to be a physician and a plane pilot. Those were the two main things that I wanted to do. And that really never changed. So I was already preparing to go to medical school when I was in junior high and high school. In high school, I was a blood gas technician. In college, I was a blood gas technician, worked the night shifts. Uh, All the way through the first two years of medical school, I was a blood gas tech and a pulmonary function technologist. Do you feel like becoming a doctor just was something that was just naturally just 
plopped inside of you. Can you point and say, oh, that's the moment I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Or is that something that you just feel like just flowed from you naturally? I think it flowed from me naturally. My father's best friend, my father's a small businessman. My father's best friend from childhood was the director of research at Will's Eye Hospital uh, in Philadelphia for my entire life. So I do remember that he introduced me to biology models of cells and things when I was a little kid. He was definitely my mentor in medicine and wanted me to be an ophthalmologist actually. And I did ophthalmology research in college. I did it at um, Will's Eye Hospital. And then they sent me to Bascom Palmer in Miami, which is the number one eye hospital in the world. I was doing research there with some top researchers on gyrate atrophy, retinitis pigmentosa. And I found ophthalmology to be incredibly boring for me. Even at these top institutions, I was just like cross-eyed looking through the microscope and I just couldn't imagine myself doing it. So when I was at the University of Miami doing research at Bascom Palmer, I was going to the emergency room during my downtime, knowing that's where my passion was. Okay, pause. How did you know? At 100%, I agree with you about ophthalmology. I think it's cool for a little while to be able to look inside the eye and realize that there's all those things in there. But then after that, it's just okay. I'm good on that. How did you know that emergency medicine is like where you needed to be? When I rotated at Highland, uh, I had some amazing mentors and experiences at Highland and rotating at emergency rooms in Salt Lake City. And I rotated with a physician who trained at Highland, who was chief resident there named Les Dixon. And he said, I really think you have a gift for emergency medicine. I want you to go to my residency. He is a dog lover. And Barry Simon at the time was a dog lover. He drew a picture of a dog, said, this kid needs to rotate with you, send it to Barry. And I was rotating at Highland like two or three weeks later. <laughs> and then I matched with Highland and the rest is history. So... How did you, well, tell me about when you knew that emergency medicine was for you. Did you have a patient encounter, a specific one? Can you pinpoint when it was just- No, I can't, I can't really pinpoint uh, exactly when and where it was, but part of it was my rotation with emergency medicine in Salt Lake, even before I got to Highland and a mentor telling me, you really have a gift for emergency medicine. I think a patient came in with chest pain and uh, it was actually cholecystitis and I picked it up as cholecystitis and he sat me down and said, you really have a gift. You picked this right out of the, from the beginning that this wasn't a cardiac issue. And I think you should pursue this. I think you were born to do this and I think you should train where I train. I uh, but I was already thinking about it, obviously, because I was rotating. I'm curious to know, now that you were at this point out as a male, a gay male, and you're in emergency medicine, how that kind of played into your patient experiences. I feel like maybe being out could give you the opportunity to be more open and hold space for other people. As well as your other experiences with living in the Buddhist temple and living in Argentina and having Spanish literature. But can you say a little bit more about maybe how that part of your life interplays with how you 
treat patients? First of all, I will say that I am uh, forever grateful for my residency at Highland because at the time when I trained at Highland, they celebrated people's diversity. They celebrated a diverse staff. They celebrated treating each patient equally. It's, a, it's an undeserved population in Alameda County. And to this day, they have been a leader and on the forefront of diversity issues in medicine and equity issues in medicine. They've been doing research for decades. And some of my mentors are still doing research there. And some of my classmates uh, are leaders within this community. And at the time, I really didn't think that there were diversity issues within medicine because I trained at Highland. And then when I came to Miami and trained in Miami or began working in, in Miami at my various jobs, I had a very, had a very diverse working community in Miami. My second director was an African-American male, retired uh, Navy SEAL. And I was with him before I went to Mount Sinai. When I got to Mount Sinai, I believe both chief residents were African-American females, one Dominican and one Haitian at the time. Uh, so I didn't really realize that there were issues within emergency medicine with matching with diversity because that wasn't my experience during my career. Got you. Got you. I love that. So that being said, what brought you to AAM and how did you bring your talents over to us? <laughs> the chairman of my department at Mount Sinai was David Farsi, who's a friend and another one of my mentors. He and I sat down and when we were working on core faculty, he said, I want you to join the diversity, equity, inclusion committee at the time. Ellie Gomez was working with that at the time. Uh, Lisa Moreno had become a friend just through AEM. And the only reason I started going to AEM was to support Dave as a friend, as a colleague. And he said, oh, it's, I want you to know uh, I'm going to be on the board of AEM. I want you to come support me in Austin. And I went and met some people. I met Lois Swisher and Ellie, Lisa, Dave and several other members of AEM at the time. So it came naturally because a lot of these people are friends. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And David Farsi is one of my favorite people. <laughs> he's, yep. such a, he's such a personality. That's the only thing I could really say. He's just, he's so big and he's got um, such a big personality. So was this when he was, he was running for president or when he actually was president? That's when all this was happening with you? He was running for president, and that actually, I think, was the first time I went to AEM, and he said, I'd like to have your support, and then I continued going to EM. He became president uh, unexpectedly early when he was in San Diego, and I was there to support him for that, and just fell into uh, the community of AEM and realized it was a community that I enjoyed and was standing up for the emergency physician and not necessarily CMGs or corporate medicine, was actually standing up for the individual emergency physician in practice. Right. And so what keeps you in the academy now? I think the academy is on the forefront of many issues, particularly with the CMG situation that we have in emergency medicine 
with Jedi or diversity issues and education issues. I think it is a more compact, as Lisa Moreno likes to say it, we are like the Navy SEALs or Special Forces of Emergency Medicine. We're not a big, broad agency that accepts everyone. You have to be board certified, emergency medicine trained. So I think it is a very elite group of emergency medicine physicians. And I really enjoy the interactions with the people in the AEM. That's beautiful because we are elite. I think sometimes people say it's 8,000 compared to other organizations that have bigger numbers of emergency physicians, but you're right. We are elite because we don't just accept everyone, but those who are qualified are welcome. And this is your family. Like we are a, a very close knit family. The fact that everybody knows Lois Swisher, everyone knows Lois Swisher, and it's probably involved in the Academy somehow, shape, form or fashion because of her. We are very close knit. And like I said, we're, I love that you said that we're elite. That's very true. How did you become the now past, but how did you become the, the co-chair um, of the Jedi section? So I had been in a few phone calls in the Jedi committee at the time. It was just phone calls. And then I got a, a phone call from Lisa Moreno and saying that she thought that I should be the next Jedi chair. If I remember correctly, that was in 2017 or 18. Maybe, no, it was in April of 19. And at the time I said, are you crazy? I'm a middle aged white male from Salt Lake City, Utah that was raised Mormon. I have implicit bias just by who I am. And she said, Eli, Ellie and I have been through this at length. We've discussed all of the above and we still think you are the guy to do this. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I said, I absolutely refuse to do this unless you surround me with a diverse coalition of leaders that I, and a co-chair and vice chair who are underprivileged minorities uh, that can help me with this work because I'm not doing this alone. And so that is when uh, Joanne Williams and Atala Brown came into the picture. And it's been an amazing experience since. Joanne Williams is in, is a, I want to be like her when I just grow up. She is an idol of mine. She gives a phenomenal talk on airway that everybody should see. And she's a phenomenal human being. And she's become a dear friend of mine. One of the greatest friendships and most rewarding friendships I've ever had. We call each other up on a regular basis, cracking each other up. We just spoke a few days ago, carrying on, cracking up like you and I do. And I've really learned a lot from her. What have you learned? Tell, tell me one thing that you've learned from Dr. Williams. I've learned from her experience. I've really tried hard to see emergency medicine and to see her experience through her eyes, which is impossible, but I really try to be uh, empathetic to the journey that she has had in emergency medicine. Some of the stories she has told me are harrowing, they're heartbreaking, and at the same time, she forges forward. She has a great sense of humor. She's a very compassionate, kind woman. She is not afraid to stand up and fight for her rights. 
She was very instrumental in putting together the Jedi logo. She actually on a night shift doing critical care medicine, put together a rough draft of the Jedi logo on her computer and I think faxed it to me. <laughs> That's bad. where the Jedi, the Jedi logo started. And then it was tweaked several times before we came up with what we wanted. But it came from Joanne. Yes, because there were inner rumblings of, okay, Jedi, should we lean into the whole like Star Wars thing? But then, of course, trademarks and copyrights, we couldn't really do that. And so now... Our logo is basically blind justice. So can you share a little bit more about like how that really the back and forth and, and the discussions about how we ended up with the, the final logo? We wanted it to be, we wanted it to tip toward the Jedi. So being in robes. So uh, justice was something. And then it was something that came out of Joanne's head who had, and her mind which when it came forward, it was fantastic. Originally, she wanted to have Yoda in it. And we said, no, we might get in trouble for that. And so she switched it to an African-American female holding the scales of justice. And it evolved from there. At some point, there were some lightsabers and things like that. And we said, we don't want to have a weapon of war. This is about a fight for justice and equity. And so it just came together through time. We'll say that Kathy Uy and the AEM were very instrumental in helping us, as well as Madeline with putting that together. Yeah. Uh, Corlin Brown was very helpful as well as were you. Yes. I just thank you for bringing up Kathy Uy and Madeline. I, from being involved peripherally from the beginning and then more and more involved with the committee and now section over the years, the AEM staff has been absolutely instrumental, <laughs> if not foundational, for us to come up off the ground to where we are now. And so I love emailing <laughs> Kathy and be like, Kathy, please fix this or help me. And they're always receptive. Well, I miss Madeline so much because she was very instrumental of getting us off the ground as well as many other sections in the academy. And the reason why we have blossomed, I believe, as an, an academy really over the last five to seven years is really because we have incredible staff. Like I must say that Kathy is highly organized. She understands the structure. She understands the bylaws. Uh, and there's no way Jedi would exist without Kathy and particularly Madeline as well. Madeline, I didn't have a lot of experience in AEM. I call Kathy and Madeline and Lois Switcher my AEM yellow pages because if I had any organizational questions or who to talk to, Lois saved me several times from political disasters because she knows everyone and she knows the player, the players. And then Kathy as well and Madeline, they have incredible insight into human beings. I don't think I would have met you or known you so well if it hadn't been for Madeline. No, Paul, because you, we talked on the phone the other day and I asked you, what made you talk to me? Because I was just sitting in the corner minding my own business. You started speaking to me. You don't remember this? I do remember. So we were actually on our way to lunch at AEM and I had Joanne and Glenn Singleton with me. And might I add that 
I would have never done this work without the guidance of Glenn Singleton, who is a leader in DEI initiatives since the 90s. And he has advised me, I was even chatting with him this morning on a regular basis about how to go about this. In fact, I didn't even accept the position to be co-chair until I had talked through it at length with Glenn. And uh, he has always been a guiding light for me. He is very good at pointing out uh, implicit bias that I might have and educating me in real time and helping me work through situations. And he's been a very dear friend for decades. So that has helped me quite a bit. I was walking down the hallway with Glenn and Joanne and I think Fiona Azabuki, who's a colleague of mine. You were sitting there on your computer and I'm like, this young African-American female should know Joanne and Glenn. And so I just introduced myself. Hi, we're going to lunch. Would you like to go with us? Because we were going in a group anyway. And that's how it started. And then the rest is history. And now you're calling my phone. <laughs> Did you know Joanne at the time? Yes, a okay. little bit. Because I believe it was at Scientific Assembly when it was in San Diego. So that was in 2018. That was when the the committee or the, the you know, I think it was the committee, the Jedi committee was getting started. And so she was at the first meeting um, for that. And so she's also my sorority sister. I noticed that she had something on. And so I immediately went to go talk to her. We, we didn't, we weren't as close. Like I, I, I met her, but then definitely at scientific assembly, when we all went to lunch, that's when I got to know her a little bit more. But what I want to say to you, Paul, as I'm listening to you share your story is that I really appreciate your humility. You immediately recognize that this may on the outside may be something that is above you, or maybe that you are not the best person potentially to handle, which I, I'd argue against that. But you immediately called for help and you immediately went to people that you knew were going to help to make this section and this opportunity, your moment as impactful as possible. Because what I hear as you're talking and is really not about you, it's really about you pushing diversity and showing diversity in a lot of different ways. And so I appreciate in your leadership that you really are humble to know that you're just a vessel and you hold space for other people's voices and opportunities to be shared. Thank you. I must say that Lisa Moreno and Ellie told me that I'm good at connecting people. And so I look at myself as someone who connects the players. And I've always said in this work, I have always been looking for young, energetic, thoughtful, organized future leaders and I'm really happy with those that, that Lisa and Ellie surrounded me with. And Joanne and I together have always said, we really wanted to find young energetic leaders that will be the future of the academy. And I'm very happy with what we have. I'm very excited for the future of JEDI. I think we've got a great group. They have amazing plans. Uh, you did amazing work when you were part of uh, the committee and the leadership and helping putting together a calendar and a highlight. And every player has had their part. Talo has been a prolific writer and a thought leader. Cortland Brown, our current president, is highly organized, a wonderful, compassionate leader. 
and has amazing plans. We have new and upcoming leaders like Willie Mundo, who we are going to together almost single-handedly with uh, L.A. Alvarez, a, a um, simulation on equity in the last AEM, which was a really outstanding uh, experience for everyone that was involved. And so I think there's a lot going on. I think the main issue is particularly for white people, as we say, is to just recognize that there's implicit bias in all of us. And to pretend like we don't see race is a complete lie. It's complete hogwash. We do see it. We do have implicit bias. It has been driven into us since we were little children. My favorite examples are buckwheat on the Little Rascals. That's something that's driven into children from day one. And there's so many more examples throughout our culture that uh, people don't realize that it's part of the fabric of, of film and television and society. And we all have implicit biases and that's okay, that's fine. It's that we need to recognize them and we need to work on them. I don't think we're gonna be able to change any of this overnight. It's a continuous work, but the first step was to recognize it, to be humble about it. White people need to call out white people and we're learning how to do that. We are privileged white people and we need to understand that in many ways. And to be able to look at the experiences of, of residents and attendings through their eyes, it becomes very clear that things are going on and the research is bearing that out now with numbers that we have work to do and it's a process. And I'm just very humbled and grateful to be part of that process and to meet people like you and the other people in the academy that have helped me see a lot of things that I didn't see before and I continue to learn. Paul, this was a really good conversation. Do you have anything else you'd like to share? No, I'm good. Dr. Paul Peterson, thank you so much for your time, past co-chair of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section. I really appreciate your time. All right, thanks. Thanks. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website.